It's my pleasure to introduce first my colleague, Kelly Cobb. He's the Senior Director of External Affairs here at Cato. It's his responsibility to interact with Capitol Hill, with the administration, a lot of other organizations. And he has the uh, 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 signaled pleasure of introducing to you one of the few vertebrates in the United States Congress. Thanks very much, Tom. Um, as you mentioned, I, I oversee our external relations, um, and it's rare to find somebody that is, that is really a true uh, stalwart in trying to preserve liberty in the Constitution and Congress. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce our special guest, kind of surprise speaker for this lunch, Congressman Justin Amash from Michigan, my home state. Uh, he was elected in 2010. Uh, he's only been there a short time. But he has clearly become one of the foremost defenders of liberty in the House of Representatives, and it's not an easy task. He started small, believing in transparency. He posts an explanation of every single vote he takes on Facebook, uh, and he lists his and his own staff's taxpayer-provided salaries on his website, probably to the consternation of some of his staff in the room. Uh, he's fought unnecessary use involvement in foreign conflicts. He's fought for dramatic reductions in federal spending. He's consistently fought to preserve the Constitution and our rights. He rightly says he bases his votes on the principles of limited government, economic freedom, and individual liberty. As chairman of the House Liberty Caucus, which is a group of roughly 20 or so liberty-oriented representatives, he's become one of the most influential members of Congress. Under his leadership, they've repeatedly challenged the establishment, and he's forced the Republican-led House of Representatives to move better in the direction toward liberty. Those of us in this room who believe in liberty, we rarely get policy wins. Uh, no political party really universally uh, takes what we say to heart and supports everything that we stand for. Um, but we win when we build unique and diverse coalitions across party lines to stand up for the issues that we care about. Last week, we saw one of the more brilliant displays of that coalition building when Congressman Amash forced the House of Representatives to vote on an amendment to defund the NSA's unconstitutional surveillance programs. Transcending partisanship to defend the Fourth Amendment and liberty, he gained support from the most progressive Democrats to the Republican author of the Patriot Act, all of whom stood up on the House floor to support Congressman Amash's amendment. Now, the measure was defeated, but it would have passed if only seven representatives had switched their votes. And more to the point, he made the D.C. establishment so incredibly nervous that he had the Speaker of the House, Republican John Boehner, and President Obama both whipping votes against his amendment, both working together. That's probably a good sign in and of itself. So we might be a disheartened bunch, uh, but I will say uh, personally and also professionally, Congressman Amash is, is one of the few people in Congress who really does give me and I think our entire movement some hope. Congressman Amash. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. And I've, I've been a huge supporter of the Cato Institute for many years, from long before I was in a public office. So it's really an honor to be here. Um, it's, uh, it's an organization that has done wonderful things on behalf of the cause of liberty. And uh, I've, I've had the opportunity to meet with the, uh, the new president and um, ha had the opportunity to, to talk about how we can go further in, in getting the Cato Institute involved in uh, what Congress is doing on a day-to-day -day basis because uh, I think it's critically important that members of Congress 
have the insights and the uh, the the knowledge that the Cato Institute provides. I think it, it, we we now have the base for it that is going to be receptive to these kinds of ideas, which is something we didn't have uh, many years ago. Uh, I would say that uh, the debate last week on the House floor was uh, my proudest moment as a member of Congress. Uh, I think we, the American people, finally got the chance to see a real debate on the House floor, a, a real amendment that split parties, that didn't go along party lines, where people had to cast a vote on principle and decide which side of a very simple question did they want to be on. Do you think the government should have the ability, the authority, to collect the phone records of every American in the United States without any suspicion at all? Um, that simple question was put in front of everyone, and uh, it made for a fantastic debate. And I, I can tell you, I was so proud of how many colleagues uh, stepped forward and stood up for the Fourth Amendment. Uh, we had 205 members vote yes on my amendment, and uh, that's really a, a remarkable thing. We had 94 Republicans, which is uh, where I'd hoped it would be. I, I'd been talking to many Republicans, and I felt we could get to about 100 Republicans. Uh, the Democratic side fell a little bit short because the White House put a lot of pressure. But I will tell you that talking to my colleagues, I've never been so proud of members of Congress. I'm a very, um, I'm very cynical about politics, very cynical about government. Uh, one of the reasons I ran for office is because I don't like politicians, and I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to get in there and mix it up with them. Um, and so I don't really uh, think that highly of what goes on in the political process generally. But uh, for once, and I'm confident it will carry over, that we have the momentum now, but for once I was proud. I had colleagues telling me, you're, you're right, Justin. We're going to stand up for the Fourth Amendment. We're going to do what's right for the American people. And um, it was an amazing experience. Uh, one of the... Uh, one of the great things about the process is, is um, getting people like Jim Sensenbrenner on board with, uh, with this amendment. Uh, he was adamant that we had to uh, stop the way this program was operating, the way it was interpreted by the uh, FISA courts to operate. And uh, he's one of the uh, chief authors of the Patriot Act. So when you get one of the chief authors of the Patriot Act coming on board and saying, yes, I will help you, and giving a floor speech, uh, I think that was a very uh, pivotal moment in the, in the process. Uh, I, I will tell you uh, that the Republican Party is changing. Uh, it, this is not the Republican Party of five or 10 years ago. And I think part of the reason that the establishment, I'll call them, their arguments uh, ring so hollow uh, why it, 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 it doesn't carry any weight, the arguments they, they continue to make against us, is because the American people are different than they were uh, 10 years ago. They have different views on these issues. And uh, I think a, a lot of the people who have been here a long time, who have been in D.C. for a long time, a lot of the politicians, are not that connected with their communities anymore in the way they need to be. And they are not aware that public opinion has shifted on these issues. 
All you have to do is go back to your district and hear what your constituents are saying. I was at a parade just this last week, and uh, I was actually moved almost to tears, literally, by the crowd reception after we had had, you know, it was, the, it was a couple days after this amendment vote, and the reaction of people back home in support of what I was doing was amazing. On, didn't matter if we were Republican or Democrat or any, anywhere in between, uh, it was an amazing reaction and I was really moved by it. And if they, I think, spent a little more time in their district holding town halls, going to events, holding meetings, they would find that the American people are behind a more libertarian uh, Republican party. That's what they wanna see. They wanna see a Republican party that believes consistently in limited government, economic freedom, and individual liberty. And um, I really think that's where the Republican Party is headed. If you look at the people who voted um, yes on my amendment, those who are here who have been in Congress for five years or less, um, a majority of those Republicans voted yes on my amendment. And if you look at the people who have been here for more than five years, uh, we lost uh, on the Republican side almost two to one. So you can see the difference there. And it's, it's, uh, it's a changing party. Uh, I'm the chairman of the House Liberty Caucus. Uh, this started out as a very small thing. It's grown into about a couple dozen members. I think it's gonna continue to grow, especially after uh, last week. And we're actually getting Democrats interested in this now. I've had Democrats approach me and say, hey, I'd like to come to your House Liberty Caucus meetings. Let's find common ground um, because Politics doesn't have to be so partisan. We can work Republicans and Democrats together on many of these issues. And particularly when it comes to the area of civil liberties, I think it's important that we find allies on the Democratic side. That's certainly what I did with my amendment and uh, certainly what I, I plan to do uh, going forward. So I, I wanna actually open it up to question and answer, if that's okay. Uh, they told me I could do whatever I want up here. So, <laughs> so I'm gonna... I'm gonna open it up to question and answer so that I can uh, hear what you have to uh, say about any of these issues or whether I've, anything I've talked about or anything else. We, we do have a microphone. Uh, if you raise your hand, uh, we'll come around with the mic. Uh, hi, my name is Deepak. I study MS Finance at UMass Boston. Uh, I would like to ask, uh, how many participation from, from the minorities when it comes to libertarian movement, from the Hispanics, from the blacks, and from the Asians? How much they subscribe to this theory and, because they are going to be a substantial vote bank in the future, so how do you plan to attract them? Thank you. Well, when it comes to the issue of civil liberties amongst uh, blacks and Hispanics and others, is that the question? Well, I, I think uh, people in, in those communities, it's a, it's a natural, there's a natural draw to these issues, of course. I think this is an area where Republicans can uh, earn the support of many people uh, who do not uh, look like what most people have come to think of the Republican Party as being, which is uh, white, older males. Um, I think we can win the support of many others by focusing on civil liberties issues. And it doesn't have to be the exclusive focus. Uh, I'm a strong believer in limited government when it comes to economic policies. If you follow my work, um, th that's actually been a big part of my focus. I have a balanced budget amendment uh, that, uh, that I've spent a lot of time working on that, that's very important. But uh, if we want to bring people 
into the party, into the Republican Party, and uh, welcome, them, I welcome them. I think civil liberties issues are a great draw, and then people will be more receptive to some of the other areas that also uh, relate to liberty, ideas of liberty. Dan LeBlanc from Eastern Michigan University. It's my understanding that gerrymandering causes a major issue in how really uh, our representatives are fairly elected. Being that you are actually in Congress, can you conceive or think of any way on how we could help fight gerrymandering to make certain battles uh, more fair or representational? Well, it's, it's, it's state by state. I think, uh, for example, the state of Michigan has pretty good rules in place. They're not perfect, but it seems to be better than a lot of other states in terms of making districts that are not um, so clearly gerrymandered. Take a look sometime at the congressional map of Michigan, and you'll find that the districts are a lot blockier looking. For the most part, there's some strange districts around the Detroit area, I would say, but for the most part, the districts are pretty blocky shaped. If you look at other states, they like zigzag and curve, and uh, yeah, that can become a, a real problem. Uh, you get these districts where they're 70% Republican or 90% uh, Democrat, and then uh, they put, it, you, you get a person elected in one of those districts who's not really that independent, and they're supported by basically the DC establishment, and they win year after year because they don't, you know, they scare off primary opponents, and they don't really have an opponent from the other side, from the other party. So, um, you know, this is a, it's a state-level issue. The states have to decide these things, but um, yeah, I think, I think Michigan does it better than other states do. On this side, yeah. Adrian Kalis from Rhode Island, where our politicians are as honest as they are in Chicago. Uh, you mentioned that you want to have a constitutional amendment, balanced budget. Yes. If our government would occasionally read the constitution, <laughs> we would not be in the trouble we are in. <laughs> That's right. They disregard the document completely. So adding an amendment is going to be, they will disregard that too. <laughs> And so leave the Constitution alone as an historical document. Maybe in the future generations we'll rediscover it. Don't change it. Don't touch yeah. it. <laughs> this, th that's, a, that's a very good point. I think that a lot of people hold that view, and I think that's a, 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 a strong position. I, I don't um, uh, necessarily disagree with that in most cases. I think when, when you get into this process and you see the two parties trying to deal with budget issues, you realize they need something in place that is easily understood by the American people, which I think a constitutional amendment on a balanced budget uh, would, would do. I think that's easy for the American people to understand. Um, there are uh, places in the Constitution where I think uh, it's, it's more gray area, and you have strong arguments on both sides, and, and uh, it becomes very uh, difficult to follow if you're, if you're sitting at home. But a balanced budget requirement, I think, is, is very clear-cut. And, and it, when you look at uh, our amendment, it's H.J. Res. 24. I'd encourage you to take a look at it. Um, it is written, it's carefully crafted to uh, look like constitutional writing. Uh, we tried to make it, uh, we tried to be respectful to the Constitution in my office. Uh, it's very short. 
Um, it does what it needs to do and no more. It doesn't try to put policy into the Constitution. It just makes sure that we have a balanced budget. Uh, and it, it's, a, it's a rolling average um, balanced budget amendment. So you have to balance current spending with the average revenues of the previous three years. Um, I, I could talk about this for half an hour, but I'll, I'll leave it at that and encourage you to take a look at it, HJ Res 24. Yes. Or go, go back there, yeah, sorry. Hi, David Cox, uh, California, and uh, thank you for coming today. I, I wish we had more congressmen like you in Congress. Uh, my question is, what are what is the sort of political temperature about uh, bailing out Detroit? I think there's uh, nobody is inclined to bail out Detroit. Uh, it, this is a state and local issue. Uh, the state uh, government has not said they will bail out Detroit. So. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, as a federal issue, it's dead. I'd like to ask a question about <clears throat> entitlement reform and the tsunami of debt and unfunded liabilities that almost no one is addressing. Just as a little background, countries that have successfully dealt with that has been the center left and the center right. Have, have <coughs> acted like grown-ups and said, we have a big problem, Australia, Canada, and other countries. Do you see any hope that on the center left, you will have partners who will be willing to address the looming fiscal crisis? And how will you reach out to them? Yes, I'm very optimistic. I, uh, I tend to be optimistic about um, the possibilities. Now, I'm very cynical about politics in general, but I think uh, this is the United States. We've overcome a lot. And um, I know that I have partners in the Democratic Party who would be willing to work with us in the Republican Party. The issue is uh, making sure that Democrats understand we're serious about uh, cutting spending. And what happens is that the Republican Party has become so protective of military spending that Democrats go home and they say, well, the Republicans won't give up anything that they like, so why should we give up anything we like? And the two parties are going to have to come together and, and forge some compromise that deals with all sides of the issue. So you got to do military spending, you have to do um, Social Security and, and Medicare reform, as well as Medicaid. I mean, the, the four largest area of areas of government, Social Security, military spending, Medicare, and Medicaid, with Medicare growing um, the fastest, it's going to eventually be the largest. Um, but it has to be, you have to deal with all of those issues. You can't just say as Republicans, uh, let's reform all the uh, entitlement programs, but let's not do anything about military spending. Uh, well, first I'd like to say I'm, I'm very glad that you and uh, others like Mr. Sensenbrenner, Mr. Jim Jordan, Mr. Mick Mulvaney stood up for our Fourth Amendment rights. Uh, my question is this, uh, the amendment rule, uh, the rule for the amendments to the uh, bill in which you offered your amendment was a closed rule and it was, uh, it was for that purpose to not have debate on things like Syria or Egypt or uh, the NSA, right? So how were you able to get leadership to get the establishment to even allow your amendment to be ruled in order so that it could be debated on the floor? Well, it was a, it was a structured rule, so they, they designed it so that they could basically limit what amendments uh, came to the floor and what didn't. But um, 
At the end of the, at the, end of the day, I, I, I believe Speaker Boehner recognized that there was enough support within the conference for the amendment and enough concern about not having an amendment like that come to the floor that he risked um, having the appropriations bill held up uh, if he didn't put this amendment on the floor. And, and perhaps um, uh, the thinking was, we can, put, we can get the amendment to the floor, and then everyone will rally against it, and we'll crush it and send um, Repamash and his allies a message. Now, it, it clearly backfired if that was the if that was the intent, because the amendment almost passed. It came very close. So I think the momentum is on our side. Uh, I give Speaker Boehner credit, a lot of credit, for bringing it to the floor. Uh, whatever the pressure, uh, ultimately, um, he didn't have to do it. He could have said, no, we're not going to bring this amendment to the floor. Uh, maybe he took a gamble and it didn't pay off, but um, in any event, he still brought it to the floor, and I'm not sure um, how many other speakers would have done that. Uh, I would say that he took the extraordinary step of voting against my amendment, which, uh, for those who don't know, speakers don't usually vote on legislation, uh, let alone amendments. I don't, I don't remember the last time the Speaker of the House voted on an amendment. So that was an extraordinary, uh, and he voted no. Um, but um, so he clearly wanted to send a statement there. Uh, but I still give him credit for bringing it to the, bringing it to the floor. <coughs> My name is Bob Marwell. I live in Dallas. <clears throat> Thank you for your leadership, sir. Thanks. I, uh, I want to ask you a question about the operation of the House of Representatives. I got here Sunday, turned on C-SPAN, heard uh, Eric Cantor uh, announcing the House agenda for this week. <clears throat> they were going to be off on Monday. They would resume uh, session at noon on Tuesday today. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but that was going to be postponed until 6 p.m. tonight. The return tomorrow and the rest of the week just before the August break, which would start on uh, Thursday, I guess. I know that <clears throat> there's meetings, committee meetings take place a lot. Uh, you've expressed the value of town hall meetings at home. Mm -hmm. But tell us how much work the House does in session during, during the term. And <clears throat> with some of the issues we're facing, you're facing, uh, are they working hard enough? Well, it's gonna, it depends on the particular member of Congress. There are some members who probably don't work very much at all um, on, on legislation, and when they come to D.C., they'll show up for votes, and then the rest of their time is spent making phone calls to donors. Um, I, I know that there are a lot of members of Congress like that. There are other members who spend a lot of time working on policy. Uh, I happen to work with a lot of those types of members, and they will uh, work day and night on on legislation, making sure that it's crafted well. Their their staffs work very hard. Have to give a lot of credit to congressional staff who will um, spend extraordinary hours uh, working on legislation, like like my staff did, to make sure that our amendment was uh, properly in order. Um, but yeah, there's there's a value in being back in the district for some period of time, and there's a value in in being here in D.C. I think when you're here in D.C., you should be working on legislation, you should be working on policy, and it should be stuff that really matters to the American people. Uh, we've taken almost uh, 2,000 votes um, since I've, more than 2,000 votes since I've been here in Congress. I was elected uh, in 2010, so I can't, started in 2011. And the majority of those votes are, you know, 
dinky votes that don't really do much of anything. Um, you know, the American people are neither helped by them nor harmed. You know, you're renaming a post office or um, ch changing a line here or there that, that really doesn't do all that much, doesn't affect most people. Uh, we should spend more time on issues of uh, real importance to the American people, uh, the surveillance state issues, immigration uh, reform issues. Um, these are things that really impact the American people, and we should spend, and of course, uh, the debt, dealing with our debt. How much time have we spent on reforming Medicare and Social Security? It's been almost zero time on that. Uh, how much time have we spent on uh, reforming the tax code? I know um, Dave Camp has spent time within his uh, committee, but uh, on the whole, the, the um, Congress has not spent a lot of time doing that. So uh, the big issues we haven't spent enough time on, and we spent a lot of time on little issues. Uh, when you're here, I think you should be focused on policy and focused on things that are of, are of major significance. The federal government could do uh, a lot less uh, of the other things, the small things that probably should be left to state and local governments or the private sector. Uh, Congressman, could you, uh, this is Joe Sedita from Buffalo, New York. Could you talk to us a little bit about the uh, sequester, its aftermath, and the kind of talk it's generating on the Hill? Yeah, well, we're all here still. We survived. Um, everyone's still breathing. It, it was uh, blown way out of proportion. The sequester, uh, while it certainly affected um, some people a lot, as any, as any cut does, um, when you look at it, uh, it's a 10-year it's a process. So the sequester is spread out over 10 years. And while it's a cut in the first year, it's not a cut over 10 years. It's just a reduction in the growth rate of spending. Um, and if you actually compare spending 10 years down the road with sequester without, there's almost no difference. You almost can't see, if you had a chart, you have to get like a, you know, like a microscope out to like take a look at it and, and see that there's actually a gap between the lines. So in terms of its uh, impact, um, it's not close to what needs to be done to get our uh, budget in order. And um, I'm, I'm hopeful it's just the start. Uh, at the same time, across the board cuts aren't the most elegant way to do this. We should uh, focus on those programs that are really driving the growth rate uh, of, of government, and that's um, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and military spending. Hi, my name is Sarah Harvard. And I go to American University. Uh, thank you so much for your time here today. Um, you mentioned a little bit about immigration reform, and I realize a lot of Republicans are kind of put in the spotlight regarding that, um, that issue. And I actually recently read a report by Michael Clemens of the Center of Global Development that said that if all immigration barriers were waived, our GDP would increase drastically by 50 to 150 percent. So I was wondering if you could tell me your thoughts on immigration reform and if you have any proposals for it. I agree with Raul Labrador. It's my, <laughs> Raul Labrador is my, um, my ally in Congress, my friend. Uh, he is an immigration attorney. Uh, he was uh, part of the House Gang of Eight before he decided to withdraw from that. Uh, I think it's critical that immigration reform uh, have um, 
a few very important elements that you have border security first, that you deal with visa overstays and all of those issues, that you improve the legal immigration system because right now it is very difficult for people to come to this country legally and there has to be an overhaul of the legal immigration system. I think this is an area where we actually get a lot of pushback from Democrats who are often less interested in making our legal immigration system work than they are in making sure that those who have come here illegally uh, can become citizens. So let's focus on the legal immigration uh, aspect, making sure that we get people here legally. And then we have to deal with the 11 million people who have come here illegally and put them on some sort of path to legal status. This doesn't mean citizenship. It could mean citizenship down the road, but they would just be put on the same path as everyone else. They wouldn't have any special path to citizenship. The key is first to provide them a pathway to legal status, and then they're put on the same path as everyone else, no different from, uh, from another person. They don't get moved to the front of the line or anything like that. Um, I, I think if you bring those elements to the table, you can have uh, a, an immigration reform package that works for the American people. Um, but, but it has to start with uh, securing the, the border. Um, you know, there, I know there are some libertarians who would like to have it be uh, free reign and everyone just crosses borders. I think with our current system, that doesn't really work. Uh, there are too many um, welfare benefits in the country. There are too many programs out there, and it becomes very costly if we have a system like that. So we have to have some regulated system. Hi, I'm Bob Green from California. There's numerous reports on waste and redundancy in government. Uh, GAO's report, which comes out every year, Cato's own report, Senator Coburn's report, and there are other ones. What indication do we have as citizens that anything is being done about it? I've been waiting for five years to see a report that says something is being done. What is being done? Because you're looking at, between those three reports, <coughs> approximately 700 billion dollars. Yeah, I mean, I'm on the Oversight and Government Reform Committee. The, these are the types of issues we deal with every day. Um, we have uh, brought people in to testify. We have passed legislation of our, out of our committee. But at the end of the day, uh, you have to have uh, another party that's working with you on those kinds of issues, and, and we haven't had that right now. Yes, uh, my name is Ernest. I go to Georgetown Law. Um, and when I got to law school, they let me in on a, a big secret that I didn't understand before about how so much of our law is not actually passed by Congress. It's how it's passed by agencies and then signing notes and all these things. And, uh, you know, then they have you read the Federalist Papers and they talk about how when you combine the judicial and the legislative and the executive all in one, Yet we have a regulatory state that combines the executive and the judicial and uh, the legislative all into one. And I'm wondering, especially somebody who's into government reform, it was actually a little bit extraordinary how pretty much our whole system and almost all of our law are made by these agencies which are not elected and which do combine all these things. And it seems that as much as there are very many big issues to talk about, that's just so fundamental to our system at this point. It seems almost unbelievable. And I was wondering mm -hmm. how you could comment on any improvements that can be made. Well, I, I agree with you. I agree it's a major concern, and uh, I keep pushing for a return to constitutional government. 
where Congress makes the laws. Um, it's not made by uh, courts or by regulatory bodies in the executive branch. Um, and all I can do is keep pushing forward with that and convincing more of my colleagues about that. Uh, we're not at that point yet where uh, enough people in Congress are concerned about um, holding on to the, the authority that's granted to them in the Constitution. A lot of times, I, I would add, whether it's um, through regulatory agencies or through the White House or through courts, there are many members of Congress who would rather have someone else make the decision. They think, okay, I'm a congressman, nice job, um, so now I'll come here and let these other bodies deal with the decisions and the consequences, and I'll just go do campaign events and, and make speeches. And that's, that's unfortunately what's going on with so many members of Congress. Uh, Down Warmke, Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, I was just wondering, Congressman, if they pass immigration reform, what happens if you have a participation rate of, let's say, 40%? What happens to the people who don't participate? Who don't participate in the... Well, you can pass legislation, yeah. but if people don't register with the government, if they stay in the shadows, what, what happens then? Well, I don't know, for example, the details of the uh, Senate proposal, but uh, presumably those people could be uh, deported. Um, presumably those people could be, um, uh, you know, I, I personally think there would be a high participation rate if you uh, make the system better, if you improve legal immigration and bring people here. So I'm, I'm not too concerned about a low participation rate. There are a lot of advantages for people to, become, to come here and, and become legal residents. Hi, Alora Hassan, George Washington University. Um, I was wondering with the need for military cuts and everything, what are your thoughts on veterans' benefits? And do you think we should be doing more to help veterans or if there's too much spending in that area already? I think it's important that we protect veterans' benefits. And the reason I feel that way is because uh, they were asked to go to war and fight for their country. And uh, I, I personally oppose many of the wars that they've been sent to, but when they go and do that, I think that's a, that's a cost of war, and it's a cost of the federal government that should, should be borne by the federal government. Uh, hi, Congressman. I'm Jason Cox from uh, UC Davis. Uh, I think most people would agree our tax code is one of the most broken in the world. And uh, I was wondering if, I'm not sure if you're a sponsor at the moment, but if you have heard of H.R. 25, the fair tax, and if there's any direction with that moving through Congress at all? Well, I, I know about the uh, fair tax, and uh, I think it's a superior system to what we have now. Our income tax system is not uh, well designed. It's, it's designed primarily to give members of Congress uh, the advantage uh, to work with special interest groups and pass favors to those groups that they like. Um, so there are a lot of people worried about having a, a fair tax system, but I, I would definitely uh, support um, a fair tax-like system. I don't know about the, the details of the fair tax, um, but some sort of consumption tax or a flat tax. Hi, I'm Mario Leon from Northeast Ohio Medical University. My question was, just when you had mentioned about growing the Republican Party, um, how does a leadership 
that, you know, especially after the last election, says, well, we need to look at what we need to do, how to grow the party, you know, bring new people into it. And they see representatives like you and others who are, you know, bringing on civil liberties issues and anti-crony capitalism, bringing that groundswell of, you know, at the grassroots level of people interest into the party. And my question to you is just how long do you think the leadership can continue to turn a blind eye to folks like you and consider, uh, continue to, you know, just name calling and other, you know, tactics that where they're clearly, you know, against the tide of um, the American people and those especially that might not traditionally be Republicans? Yeah, not very long. And we're seeing that. They, they can't um, keep going like this. That's why they've gotten so defensive. Uh, the reason that they uh, throw names out there, they call, they've called me a kid and a child, and um, uh, they've called me worse than that. Some of you may know. Uh, <laughs> there are some things they've called me that I can't just talk about in public. Um, so they've, they've, uh, they've gotten really nasty. And it's because they know that their, uh, their time is up. The, uh, the arguments they made for their positions aren't working anymore. Uh, there are members of Congress who built their careers on sort of the um, surveillance state, being a surveillance state Republican. I'm a national security Republican. I'm a surveillance state Republican. Uh, I'm terrible on fiscal issues, but I'm great on protecting you from terrorists. That's, that's a lot of members, unfortunately. And um, those, their days are numbered. Uh, that part of the party, uh, it'll always be there. There'll always be that part of the party. But it's dwindling. It, uh, if you talk um, to people about, for example, my amendment, I, as I mentioned before, the newer members were overwhelmingly in support of my amendment. So... Uh, they got a lot of pushback from leadership, and we lost some of that, some of them because of that. But there was overwhelming support. I went to newer members and, and whipped them on my amendment to see how many votes I had. Um, and to a person, the per people who told me they'd vote yes voted yes. And it was pretty predictable. If you were here, if you were recently elected and you've spent a lot of time in your district, you were probably going to vote yes on my amendment. So uh, the, the tide is, is turning. Things are shifting. One more sure, yeah. Where do you see the battle over the surveillance state and data gathering going in the future? Will we wake up 10 years from now and find that our wonderful electronic health records have been swept up yeah. in the system as well? Where do you see this going from here? I, I think uh, we're treading into very dangerous waters. We have to be very careful. Uh, going forward. Uh, the way technology and privacy and the Constitution come together over the next 10 years um, uh, is going to involve a very complicated relationship. And we need to figure out how to ensure that our Constitution is uh, followed, how American people's, the, the liberty of the American people is respected, uh, while uh, protecting us against threats. And there are issues out there that I think people are not um, thinking enough about. What happens when uh, there are satellites, privately owned satellites, in space that are tracking everyone in real time and it's just put on a website? Now, the government can just say, well, we're not gathering that information on you. It's some private company gathering that information, so you don't have any protections. 
Um, as libertarians, do you say that private companies can't do that? That's, those are tricky questions going forward that libertarians have to wrestle with, constitutionalists have to wrestle with, um, because we're going into a future where uh, technology is becoming so powerful that basically everything you do can be tracked and there will be basically no privacy. So how do we ensure that our liberty is protected, that government doesn't overreach, while still allowing this technology to develop and allowing private entrepreneurs to come up with things that uh, in many ways enhance our lives? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky uh, balance, and uh, I think it's going to be something we really wrestle with as a, as a people. Well, I want to uh, thank you for uh, being here, and. Um, thanks for inviting me. It really means a lot. Thanks.